welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. You know, one of the things I did years ago was go deep on uh, hedonic analysis of real estate valuation, because once again, I'm a nerd. But in this case, it was contextually around wind farms. Um, one of the things that I, I dealt with for a couple of years uh, globally was, you know, wind farm, uh, anti-wind farm disinformation campaigns um, by the usual suspects. And one of the threads that was pulled there was that wind farms cause property value damage. And they would come up with examples. But the examples were really interesting from a cognitive science. They were really interesting because they leaned into some stuff that we just do. If anybody, if you do, if you buy a property, you consider the value of the property to be that plus any appreciation, regardless of market conditions. So it's hard for people to, you know, if you have to sell your property for less than you bought it for, that's a loss. And losses, the way we think of stuff, are really bad. But then people have this budget in their heads where if they've put a retaining wall in the property or they did some, put a shed on the property or did anything, they considered all the cost of that to be part of the base cost of the property too, even though other people may not consider it a value at all. And of course, then there's the reality that we've all seen when we look at properties, which is some people have terrible taste and have spent a lot of money to create a pay on to their terrible taste. And they think that all that money is valuable and part of the valuation of the property. So when people talk about market value of their properties, what are they actually talking about? Are you guys aware of work about what's being done to actually clarify what pre-flood market value really is and how to get people to accept that? Uh, I guess I'm not aware of, of specific research on that, but I, I think there's a bit of a um, awareness building that's needed for some homeowners if, if they're looking at locations that are, let's say, actively eroding or uh, on the banks of a river that's flooding more frequently and more extremely, then I, I think part of that education is coming to an understanding that their peak market value might be right now, not 10 years down the road. And if they wait another 10 years, um, they may end up with a much lower um, sale price or just no market for their property whatsoever. So I think that's part of this discussion about buyout um, and and whether it's a good choice for individuals. Really um, developing a more sophisticated understanding of future home value in in hazardous environments. 
Yeah, it's tough. What about you, Anna? Have you have run across anything like that? Because it's, it's, once again, it's that toughness of what will people consider acceptable? I have not, but I, I, I mean, I, again, would agree with, with Brent here because one of the really important determinants of a successful buyout program is uh, the way in which the community members, the, the homeowners are engaged uh, prior to the program being implemented and during, during its implementation. And it's really during these types of conversations and discussions that you can, you can, you can educate uh, people about uh you know what what all of this means and, and and why why the price point is what it is and and um and so i think that's a really great window of opportunity to 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 to, to teach people about the whole process and including about uh, about um maybe the cost savings for them about um leaving yeah it's I wish I had more faith based on the way people actually think that giving them more information would actually lead to better results. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let, let's pivot again to, to a, a related topic. You talked, um, Anna, about, you know, the, the don't go in the water um, of flooding. And, I, you know, we just experienced down in um, uh, Louisiana again, uh, Hurricane Laura. It came ashore. Um, it was, I think, um, you know, a Cat 5 hurricane very early in the season. It was very unusual. Um, first one that had hit that particular piece of shoreline in a while. Did a lot of damage. Um, we're not hearing a lot about it because it's in mostly poor um, parishes down in Louisiana. But, you know, I've got a, some acquaintances down there. And one of the things they're pointing out is there's an awful lot of Superfund sites down there. There's an awful lot of chemical plants and distilleries and... Uh, refineries and all of that all of those toxic chemicals are now in all spread across the land um, you know when we talk about do, how much of that you know actually starts to impinge on people's perspectives they live you know in a rural area and there's a hog farm next door do they know that the flooding might cause the hog the hog pond the hog manure pond to overflow and spread that across their property with all the concomitant health impacts that's an interesting question. I think I think in I would I would estimate that people in rural areas are probably far more aware of these um, types of risks, given that the, the the expectation certainly in many parts of our country is that uh, that rural communities are very self become and are very self reliant uh, in being able to manage risks and hazards. And so that you know I'm thinking about you know large farm properties. There there are very strict uh, requirements um, around how and how to, you know, spread, for example, compost on properties and um, and other, you know, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I can't think of any at the moment, but there are there are many examples of of assuming many regulations and and that um, that rural properties and farmers have to have to abide by. So I think the awareness there is probably higher around around that. I think it's where when we get to more urban settings where uh, people don't really, they're just not aware of, of their surroundings. They're not really aware of their risk. Um, and I'm not sure how to explain that. I think, uh, I think it's, it's very interesting. I think it's something worth looking at, but we're not really, um, we're not really taught about that. I think in a, in a more uh, urban setting uh, as much. Well, and it gets down to the, the rural property. The reality is that, um, uh, we've had um, urban flight for quite a long time. I was just, you know, prepping a presentation. I'm doing a 
it's potentially the keynote for an electric bike conference in Europe of all things. I you know, did a whole bunch of work on the, the disruptive innovations of electrification of transportation. So they've asked me to speak. And I was looking at some demographics again this morning. And, you know, in 1900, um, in 1800, only 7% of people lived in cities. In 1900, you know, 16% of people lived in cities. Now, globally, 50% of people live in cities. And in developed countries like Canada, 80% of people live in cities. Um, but right now we're seeing that the people who live in rural areas are, you know, based upon my experience and my looking at the demographics, in many cases, they are those people from away. They have vacation properties. They made their money and now they've got a place in Prince Edward County, you know, to, to name one spot. Um, I have an acquaintance who's got a property there and apparently he's constantly getting done now that they, nobody can do international travel and all the, his reasonably well-off friends want to buy properties in the county and there aren't any for sale. But these people are not people who are farmers. They're not people who grew up in the country. They're, uh, it's like the you know, massive sprawling suburbs of Florida around the Biscayne Aquifer, which are you know, a, a, a risk there because they've all got septic systems which are not designed for sea level rise in, a, um, you know, in the concern they're likely to cause E. coli contamination in the Biscayne Aquifer just for joyous thought, uh, another joyous thought of rising uh, water. Um, but many of these, you know, in the sea, especially you know, if we think about the um, wildfire impacts right now, a lot of that is encroachment of urbanites or suburbanites mostly into more rural areas. So it, it's an interesting question about whether, which subsets of people who live in rural areas are actually aware of the risks and which aren't? You know, so I think you said that you had a, a notice about people who with 20 year time frames in a property when were much more, more likely to have looked at maps yeah. um, of flood sure. risks. And so I, I think, d did you get a sense from your research about levels of understanding of comparative risks for the newcomers versus the long lasters beyond that? No, and our, not yet. I mean, our analysis is sort of still ongoing. We're still sifting through quite a bit of data because um, it was a national study. But I, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting point that you raised. And, um, you know, I have, a, I, have a, I have a background in public administration. My, immediately my thought is, you know, it's really up to the municipalities and those communities to educate people. Because, again, these risks and uh, whether it's flooding or fire or, or some of the you know, contaminant issues that we were just discussing are very community specific. And so when, when, uh, when you know, here in Canada, I don't know what it's like in the United States or elsewhere, but COVID is, has resulted in an increase in people for sure moving from um, urban centers uh, into more rural areas. There's, there's data from real estate um, uh, associations here in this country to show that, to, to, to verify that. Uh, and I think I think it's you know when people buy a property, I'm going to just speak about people who are buying a property, not necessarily visitors to to to, to the rural um, parts of the country. But I think when you know when we buy a property, uh, regardless of where it is, I think that that is a really important opportunity for uh, education again. And those municipality municipalities have the information uh, around um, risks, around flooding risks, about the things that that homeowners can do. Um, and so do others. I, I mean, one of the way one of the ways in which we can tackle, I think, and we have to tackle the the, um, 
public education and outreach piece here is is through communicating this these messages over and over again through various voices. So municipalities, realtors, uh, insurance brokers, lenders, all of these um, voices matter, I think, and and really enable, I think, that kind of outreach at a time when it's absolutely critical for homeowners, especially new home buyers who, who, who don't necessarily have, um, you know, any experience in, in, in managing, excuse me, in managing a home and, and reducing its risk around flooding and other hazards, of course. It's interesting. I, I, I came across a, and there, there are many resources like this. I think that, you know, you could just hand to someone, hand to a, um, an organization and say, here, this, you hand this out when you, when you sell your, when you sell the house. That they're you know comprehensive ones I think but 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 it's possible to do this and I think it, and one interesting example I came across uh, not that long ago was um, through the organization Habitat for Humanity so you know their their objective is to support people get people into a home and oftentimes they're it's the first time um, individuals are are um, are entering a home and, and owning the home for the first time so they they may not know how to care for that and they have, they offer this wonderful resource booklet step-by-step -step guide on many things about caring for the home and one of those is around reducing flood risk and I thought that's really interesting because because I think it's it's there are again many windows of opportunity to educate you know the, the urbanite who's moving into a rural area around how to you know what that environment looks like what are some of the you know the lot level stormwater uh, management steps that they can take what are some incentive programs available there uh, for them to take advantage of in order to um, to take those steps, and even then, we know those are a bit challenging, but still really important um, for enabling people to to take the right steps. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you know, you think about it as as Brent and I. Brent knew this, and I, I learned a bunch of stuff this year. I mean, the entire concept of retreat from waterfronts in municipalities is a tax base problem for them. They're losing high value tax bases, and they're preventing high value additions to their tax base with resorts and um, high value homes on the waterfront. And sometimes those people are just going to other communities outside of the tax base in municipality entirely. Uh, and so is it, it's, it's got a conflict in the municipal uh, administration's mind to share a bunch of risks about flooding. Uh, as well, and it's also got risks in the homeowner's mind to share risks about flooding with the people who are buying it. It's just one of those interesting things where they've got two conflicting urges. Um, do you, are you aware of any, um, Brent or Anna, are you aware of any, any work that's being done on the conflicting impulses of municipalities and homeowners around sharing those risks? I, um, I was looking into a research report about uh, West Coast California wildfire risk and and really there's um, that conflict of interest is present with homeowners and developers building in the wildland urban interface um, wildfire urban interface and you know municipalities and counties are approving development applications because they want the taxes um, they're not necessarily considering the fire risk and the conclusion of uh, several research reports that I looked at on this was basically avoid is the best approach going forward. Um, we have homes that are in high wildfire risk areas now. Um, we, the opportunity to retreat is probably not there because of this tax-based issue, but we can prevent further expansion into the, the wildfire um, 
wildland urban interface. So I think, and some of that education comes down to the municipal level saying, if you're going to continue approving property development in areas of high fire risk, you're going to pay the price through um, trying to save those properties in the future and fight fires and insurance companies will be paying out after the next wildfire, etc. So avoid approaches seem to be the most positive going forward. Yeah, except that market forces are coming to bear there, you know, and uh, mm. as we as we looked, you know, the insurance companies are starting to, you know, are starting to, are, are now in many cases no longer insuring waterfront properties along the eastern seaboard of the United States that are at risk. There's a reduction there. Similarly, there's, you know, an article I forwarded to you earlier, but a couple of weeks ago, Brent, was related to insurance companies stopping their insurance policies for areas in that um, wildfire risk zones so that people who even have properties now can't get them insured at all. So it's, it gets back to planned retreat versus unplanned retreat. Um, and if society doesn't step up and help, you know, if our, if our governmental agencies don't step up and help and provide those guidelines, then, and, you know, strong impetus to get out of areas where they're going to be putting lots and lots of public servants at risk. Cause this gets back to the, you know, the, these overlapping disasters. We talked briefly about first responders, but fire and um, police and ambulance people have to go into these zones in pandemics and rescue and care for people who are who have left themselves at risk. And, and that's a public significant cost. I mean, I, I'll remind them, you know, you guys probably know about $100,000 Mike. It was a Denver study and it was repeated in multiple things. Mike, not me, but a, a namesake, I guess, was um, they assessed the cost of a homeless person in terms of cost to the municipality across all budget lines. And it was about $100,000 US a year. And they found that they could house Mike and give him much better outcomes and much better societal outcomes for $60,000 a year. So every homeless person they house save them 40% of municipal budgets and reduce risks in, um, for first responders dealing with homeless people and the diseases and the, the chance of violence and stuff like that. So it's the question of that full budget line analysis and what are we choosing as a society to expose whom to, I, I guess that I'm getting to. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the reason um, retreat has been seen as more acceptable because we are starting to do full cost accounting for um, homes and communities in high hazard zones. We know that there's going to be repeat, um, you know, interventions after a flood disaster, and that costs money. And you have the military in for two months trying to help with cleanup, and then five years down the road, it all happens again. So those costs add up over time. And, uh, and finally, we're starting to do fuller cost accounting to, to understand, well, actually, retreat might be the cheapest option. Uh, uh, lean into that. I mean, it, I, I hadn't realized that full cost accounting wasn't more common. So, Anna and Brent, can you talk a bit about how, how recently that's been and how, what kind of things are in those line items? Well, I think, um, I do think there's a, there's a growing interest in doing this more, certainly in Canada, uh, looking at the economics of, of rebuilding versus retreating. So I, I would agree with Brent there. Uh, I think some of the things that a municipality would probably look at uh, is the, or excuse me, the in, uh, cost of 
for infrastructure and servicing the area, um, um, cost to, um, um, for, uh, you know, servicing with first responders. I think, I, I mean, I think Michael, you made a really great point. And one of the challenges around, um, of course, as, as both of you probably know, uh, voluntary retreats and, and, and sort of leaving people behind is that, you know, this certainly does continue to add to the cost of, um, of uh, servicing those areas. And the, there's, there's a risk, of course, to first responders and others by having to continue to go into those areas. So I think that would be something that they would consider. Maintenance of properties, I think, is something that would go into an analysis like this. So if we do retreat, um, what, you know, how are we going to care for the land? What, what's going to happen to the property or properties? You know, if it's a public park, um, uh, you know, how much is that going to cost? Uh, is it uh, cost effective to, is it more cost effective to make it a mandatory buyout program where everybody leaves uh, versus just going in and spending you know, 100000 to mow a few lawns a year, <laughs> which, is, which certainly does happen in our cases of this in Canada. So, um, so I, think, I think those are some, some of the important things that, that would be considered, I think, in this. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, getting back to the question of those municipalities, the, the index case that I use for how municipalities end up failing everybody is the Walkerton E. coli events uh, back in your you know, early 2000s. Um, I, it was, you know, as part of reading, you know, doing that pandemic management solution, I ended up reading the aftermath study for that, uh, as well as the SARS disaster. But the it came down to a couple of guys that were brothers who were not well-educated, had got the job to do the water management and run it. They didn't know what E. coli was, and they didn't know what chlorine did. They just knew they were supposed to put this amount in. And their neighbors and friends just said, hey, it tastes a bit too much like chlorine, so they stopped putting as much chlorine in. And a lot of people died, and a lot of people ended up with you know, permanent uh, uh, organ damage. Uh, as a result of a couple of guys trying to be nice to their neighbors and not knowing any better. And it gets down to that, that rural communities, smaller communities, we expect them to deliver the same degree of safety that cities provide with massive groups of highly specialized experts in different domains. Vancouver or, you know, or Toronto's water quality experts in the water department are, you know, PhDs and masters and engineers uh, but those people don't exist in rural areas to deal with these issues. So it's, it's a really challenging problem as we look at more rural areas, how to get the expertise there for them to even know what the problems are. Yeah, in some of the, the courses that I'm teaching, I have uh, students from the Environment and Business Program. And so basically that program is for students who are hoping to be entrepreneurs in the environmental sphere. And I keep pointing out the, the elements related to hazard risk reduction, um, disaster recovery. And, uh, you know, I keep saying to them, there are prime business opportunities here for restoration companies or consulting companies that help entire communities understand their risks and, and what to do about those risks. Um, so I, I think, you know, we can turn that perhaps lack of awareness into um, potential business opportunities and, uh, and that, becomes a more positive uh, element to, to risk reduction. Yeah, and I've tried to sell a lot of stuff to cities over the years. And, you know, uh, I've had this conversation with you know, the guy who runs um, the urban planning and engineering and architecture practice for a global engineering company, uh, um, Stantec. 
and the challenge is it's hard to sell to cities in the smaller because the budgets are small and the smaller the city gets the smaller the budget is so finding the money to pay experts to do studies is tough yeah it's it's a wicked problem disaster yeah until there's a disaster um let's pivot a bit uh, because there's an interesting topic that you know Brent and I noodled a bit over, which was you know there's a a thread that you know we're starting to see you know we've got named hurricanes. Um, should we have named flooding events? Should we have named heat events? Should we have named wildfire events? And it's kind of interesting because you know we know why we named the events but what good does it does? And Brent, I think you have an opinion on this. Why don't you lead off with your opinion on naming events and then maybe Anna can lean in. Sure. Um, yeah. So this issue of naming um, tropical storms, hurricanes, organized storm systems, um, you know, that came about in order to raise awareness uh, um, in the people who were likely to experience the effects of those hurricanes. And because it was a fairly coherent event that people, especially nowadays, could track on radar and they could see the progression of that event and they could see the eventual um, you know, demise of that hurricane system and then the event is over. And, um, and I think some of this is, is now being driven by the media that realizes, well, this really galvanizes attention. So maybe we should do the same thing for massive winter storms. Um, maybe we should do the same thing for the next heat wave. And, I guess I've I've listened to some of the arguments on both sides of that, and and ultimately my perspective is that um, this was brought in specifically for for hurricanes and for broadly based awareness so that people know um, something's coming and they can take steps to avoid that. And I think those specific conditions associated with hurricanes are really not found in other extreme events. Um, so, for for example, a heat wave. Um, we don't really know the origin of that heat wave. We can't map it or locate it on radar. Um, we certainly don't know where it's going to progress to. And, and so I, I kind of question um, ramping up this, this tendency to name every extreme event as it goes. Uh, but that's just my own personal opinion. Um, I don't know that I could fight CNN on that. <laughs> uh, but maybe Anna has a, a perspective on that as well. Well, my, uh, I think, you know, any, you know, I'm an advocate for doing anything we can to raise awareness around uh, flooding and other uh, natural hazards, but I, and not to make light of it, but I wonder if we'll run out of names <laughs> because there are so many. <laughs> Um, so I mean I don't I don't I don't think it's necessary, um, but uh, I, I think I'd rather focus our attention on finding better ways to make sure people get the information they need in an understandable way. So if it's a heat wave or um, you know even uh, you know even teaching people how what what we, what our warnings and watches mean. I know our understanding of these in Canada is improving and has over the last 10 20 years or so, but. Uh, I would like to just focus on educating people on some of the basic terminology that uh, that is used to, des to describe extreme weather events and the steps they need to take um, to reduce their, their own personal risks. Yeah, it, it's interesting because we, we talk about the naming of hurricanes because they start with, there's, there's a threshold, right? right. Tro basic tropical storms are sometimes given, you know, designations so that they can be tracked. 
but they're not publicized. When they hit Saffir Simpson scale one, typically, or they're threatening to do that, then they, you know, maybe given a hurricane name, they're given a hurricane name as soon as they're in the Saffir Simpson scale, which is really a bad scale. <laughs> I've, I've gone deep and wide on what the damage from hurricanes is, and it sucks. It's like momentary velocity, peak velocity in the, uh, wait a minute. It's like, like Superstorm Sandy, which we've referenced, was 1,800 kilometers across and not a hurricane when it took landfall in the United States, and yet it did massive amounts of damage because it was 1,800 kilometers across and it had high winds and high rain. Um, you know, the, um, I think it was Harvey over Houston, you know, did massive amounts of damage, even though it was fairly small on the Saffir Simpson scale because it dumped all sorts of water, right. right? So the flooding, the storm surge, you know, the wind, which is all at wind at a specific point in time is all the Saffir Simpson scale does. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, the point there, though, is more that now we're getting to a place where Death Valley in the United States and Arizona and neighboring environs saw record-breaking temperatures that were absurd. There was a, at least some discussion about the potential that Death Valley had the highest recorded temperature ever in recorded history, or whether it was just since 1911. Um, you know, 54.4 degrees Celsius, 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, you know, California, which is going through its wildfires, is now it was in its 50th day of extreme heat. Um, Phoenix, Arizona had had I think 50 days of over 110 degrees Fahrenheit weather every day. Um, and so the question becomes, is there a, like the Saffir-Simpson scale, should a thresholding scale for some of these other events start to be occurred so that we actually have a, a gradation of, of risk and damage? And then could there a threshold be applied in there? I think that would be an interesting research question, if nothing else. And it would be nice to actually have academics lean into that and make sure that, you know, some random person from Fox News didn't make one up. <laughs> I think that would be more useful uh, for the heat wave example to have, you know, heat wave level four or, and it would have to be customized for the region because, you know, a so-called heat wave in Vancouver, nowhere near what it's like in Phoenix. And yet they're both heat waves. Um, but yeah, I think you could develop locally customized scales that would, people would learn over time uh, mean certain things. And, there's an element of risk communication that's been changing in the last decade or so. And that's when you issue a warning about an extreme event, you really try and communicate to the individual what that event is likely, the, the impacts of that event are likely to be on the individual. So in the case of hurricanes, um, hurricane warnings used to say, oh, this will be a category three with 150 mile an hour winds and a six foot storm surge. And that's all they would say. They wouldn't say, that means your, um, the vehicle parked in your driveway is going to float away and your first floor will be flooded up to the, you know, almost up to the roof. So risk communication is becoming much more uh, specific about the likely impacts on individuals. And the hope is that they will then take um, appropriate steps to, to respond. Um, but I, th I think if we did that with um, locally tailored scales for things like heat waves, I think that would, um, that would help people in the future. Well, certainly just for the heat waves, there's a, an obvious threshold. I learned this a um, couple or three years ago, and it was like, really? That's it? Basically, mortality from heat waves starts as soon as you hit 20 degrees Celsius at night. 
So if the temperature doesn't drop below 20 degrees Celsius at night for a prolonged period with, you know, then you end up starting seeing mortality among vulnerable communities. Um, mm -hmm. Cause you know, it, and that's, I was thinking 20 degrees at night. That's it's, so low. Yeah. There's no relief. Then um, this is a primarily for people with no air conditioning, of course, um, yeah. and the elderly and those with other comorbidities and, um, but I, but I was once reading that Vancouver's deadliest extreme event ever was a heat event, and it was almost invisible. Um, very few people realized it was deadly, and so it's not even on the record books as, as being the deadliest event. But yeah, hundreds of people died from a heat event in Vancouver, and many people don't realize that. Uh, but to get back to it, though, they, they are predictable. They can have risks associated with them. They can have thresholds and gradations of risk, like a Saffir-Simpson scale. And that's true for riverine flooding, too, you know, because you think about riverine flooding, you know, you have upstream conditions and you have saturation, you have um, water levels that are higher, and then you can start predicting potential risk statements and potential damage thresholds for those as well. Um, but do you bother to name them? Uh, as Anna says, and Anna, I'll ask you to, chime in for a couple of minutes on this, uh, we'd run out of names. <laughs> yeah, we would. And I, I mean, I, again, I'll just say, I think it's, uh, I think it's really important when, we're, when we think about communicating risks to people that we, we do listen to, you know, risk communication experts, because I, 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 even myself personally, don't see when I'm logging online or checking out the news or even a, even listening on the radio when there are flood warnings in my area or in other areas where I've lived, um, you know, it's just, it's just information that's, that's frightening in some cases, but you know, the, the, the follow-up, the next steps are, are rarely there. And that's a really important thing for people to know um, in order to know how to, how to respond. So that's oftentimes the uh, sort of the gap, I think, in, in how we talk about risk. And, and, and so you know, names are, I mean, I think a name would be great. Any kind of a classification system that simplifies um, uh, things for people and it's memorable for people, uh, I think would be great. But but it's about what, what they need to do with that. I think it's a really important piece. So there there are many capabilities now in how we do this. I think we've seen uh, recently in the last few years more interactive ways in which we can show people the impacts of a potential hurricane or storm surge or flood um, in, in their area, in a, in a home, uh, you know, I'm sure both of you have seen some of this on, uh, in the news over the last few years, where we have meteorologists standing and you have the visualization of the water, you know, rising above them and what that looks like. What does that actually mean for my neighborhood, for my community? We are able to do a, a lot more than we do now. And I think, um, and I think uh, from, from certainly from our research and from talking to risk communication and other communication experts, that kind of interactive element is a really great, effective way of communicating uh, to people about what they need to do and what sort of the implications are personally for them and their home. And this can range from everything from uh, you know hurricanes to how you talk about flood maps, how you talk to people about flood maps and what 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 it means when their home is located in a flood-prone area. So, so I'd really like to see more of that here in Canada and elsewhere. I think I think we're able to do it. Yeah. Well, I, I will ask, you know, both of you are both, you know, people who lead and talk to researchers all the time. You know, if, if you know, that graded, gradation scale, like the Saffir Simpson scale for riverine or coastal flooding starts to emerge, I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> I think that would be very interesting. 
uh, whether it leads to names or not, um, or just a numbering system. Um, I, you know, because I've done an, I've actually created my own alternative version of hurricane risks based upon the actual risks, and it, it's bad, but it's better than Sapphire Simpson because that's how bad Sapphire Simpson is. Uh, um, but we're in the um, end game of the podcast. Um, I'm going to ask both of you just kind of say a, a few words. You know, you've got like an international audience. Um, this is an open-ended moment for you to say, here's what's important to think about. And here's, you know, and this can be anything related to climate change, climate change adaptation, climate change risks, your research. What do you think, what do you want to say to a large global audience while you have them? And, you know, Anna, I'll ask you to start. Well, I think, you know, top of mind for me, and this is related to flooding and really any natural disaster, is I think the issue that we really need to, we really need to talk to people differently about climate change in a way where it's actually believable for them. From our research, from what we've seen, um, there, there's a, there's an, I think there's an acceptance that it's happening, but people don't really know what's, what they can do. So, I mean, this is where the barriers are for people in taking any kind of action and, and individual action is important for a collective action as well. And, and you know, practically what, that, what, I'm, what I'm referring to is the things that people can do around their home to protect themselves, protect their families from, from risks, from flooding and other hazards that are relevant in their area. But I, 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 I would really like to see a different kind of communication around climate change, one that is more, um, one is the, that is more optimistic and gives people the tools uh, to understand and be able to take actions themselves personally because I feel that you know many many people feel kind of defeated by the issue it's just so overwhelming and so this this has I think practical implications in how we receive information and the steps that we take and uh, or don't take to protect ourselves so uh, flooding flooding in Canada is the largest is the most significant um, natural disaster uh, meaning it's the most significant in terms of cost costs taxpayers uh, more than any other hazard and it's uh, it results in you know uh, over billion dollars in damages on an annual basis at the moment this is what we've been seeing this trend the last few years so it's a very it's the most costly and most frequent natural disasters and I, I think that um, we really need to work collectively with partners to raise awareness I think it's a really important um, source of action course of action cool uh, that's all very valid, valuable and valid stuff. Brent, what about you? I think what I would say is pretty complimentary to that um, and not that we rehearsed that or anything. So that's interesting. But um, what I would say is that um, climate change adaptation is going to be a long-term process and we're going to be working with communities over extremely long time frame. And some elements of potential adaptation may not be readily accepted now by a community, but with continued conversation and working with communities, I think some of those more significant decisions might be more acceptable over the longer term. And I think that's a, a way of having a conversation with communities. Um, you don't have to make all of these decisions instantly. Um, not in the next three years even. This, this could be a much longer term conversation going on. And we also know that communities change over time. So the, the community members that you're going to be dealing with 10 years down the road may not be the same as those that you're dealing with right now. So I think that's another reason to, to view this as a long term conversation and long term decision making. 
and like Anna said, to turn it into a positive opportunity for positive community change. Um, you know, current communities are not perfect. And so as part of climate change adaptation, we have the opportunity to create better communities. And I think that's part of the way that dialogue could be held. Excellent. You know, for my part, I'll say climate change is real. It's serious. The projected impacts are being felt today, and they're only going to increase over the coming decades. We will be dealing more and more with dealing with the impacts. And so we're going to be learning that PARA acronym, PROTECT, Accommodate, Retreat, Avoid, and communicate. Communities are going to be dealing with this more and more and more with every passing decade. So, you know, uh, one of the implications of this is vote for governments that take climate change seriously, have action plans, plans to mitigate it, but are also building action plans to deal with the impacts of it on communities. It's not going away. Um, this is Michael Bernard for Clean Tech Talks with Clean Technica. I've been talking with Anya Zieleski, Director of Partners for Action and a Professor at University of Waterloo, and Brent Doberstein with the Interdisciplinary Center on Climate Change, uh, Professor of Geography and Environmental Management. Um, Thank you, Anna and Brent, for your time today. Thanks, Thanks. Michael. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.